Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Follow Unchained on Twitter at Unchained underscore pod, where you can find all sorts of content ranging from my weekly newsletter to updates on my upcoming book and a whole lot more. Kuiper's Dynamic Market Maker, DMM, is the first DeFi protocol designed to adapt to market conditions to optimize fees, maximize returns, and enable extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Today's guest is Devin Fincer, co-founder and CEO of OpenSea. Welcome, Devin. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so um, it's really an honor to be here. Great to have you. Why don't you tell us the story of how you got into crypto and came to found OpenSea? Sure. I, I got intro, or introduced into crypto in 2017. I followed Bitcoin peripherally um, before that, but I suppose I was little bit of a late adopter, although sometimes people now nowadays, uh, 2017, maybe, maybe it's considered early. I don't know. Uh, that's when I really fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Um, and probably a pretty traditional path as a lot of people in Silicon Valley at the time. I started reading all the white papers, going to all the meetups. At the time, you could go to in-person meetups, which was a lot of fun, and just got really excited about the long-term vision of crypto. And in particular, very excited about crypto going beyond just financial technology. So um, most of the applications at that time were around uh, capital formation in the form of ICOs or financial products, exchanges. But I was interested in um, sort of what was called, I think at the time, the tech thesis around crypto, which was how does this actually influence kind of the underpinnings of the internet in a much broader way than just transforming finance. So that was really what excited me about the technology. And I've heard you say before that, so as far as I understand, you entered YC with a different crypto <laughs> idea and then CryptoKitties came along. And I and that was kind of how you came upon this path of founding OpenSea. And what was curious to me about that was that, you know, at the time of CryptoKitties, most use cases for crypto were financial. So what was it about NFTs that, made you um, think that they would eventually become mainstream and become a really popular use case? 
Yeah, I think at the time, um, you know, my co-founder Alex and I, we were really looking for just fun projects. We knew we wanted to do something in crypto and we were just looking around to see what was the most exciting thing to work on. And, you know, part of it was a bit of naiveness on my part. I hadn't um, been really that involved in the gaming ecosystem. So I hadn't realized how cool online games had gotten. Uh, maybe if I if I already knew that, I would have thought that CryptoKitties was as cool as it was. But I just thought, you know, a digital cat breeding game was fun and, and interesting. And, you know, the fact that these things were selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars certainly raised some eyebrows. Um, and then, you know, the deeper you go down the rabbit hole, you realize that what's magical about these NFTs is not just sort of them in isolation, right? If you think about CryptoKitties, technically, you could build the CryptoKitties application in isolation without a blockchain, right? There's, there's nothing that it really relies on a blockchain, but the sort of effects of the ecosystem around CryptoKitties. So at the time, people were building applications on top of CryptoKitties. So one of the folks who actually currently works at OpenSea built Kitty Hats, which is a way to uh, accessorize your CryptoKitties with a hat. You really couldn't build that type of application without some form of you know, true digital ownership of the asset and the ability to kind of move it from just the CryptoKitties website onto an external marketplace or onto some other game. Um, and that was a really fascinating concept to me. It was this idea that you could have this new type of digital ownership that would allow for a lot more creative use cases than what you see with uh, traditional digital assets. And since NFTs are still something that people are wrapping their minds around, can you just answer the simple basic question of what is an NFT? As many probably know, NFT stands for non-fungible token. Um, and the way I like to think about NFTs is they're sort of a, a digital item with some of the things we, that are really nice about physical items. So when you own a, a physical item, you can kind of do whatever you want with that thing, right? If I own a cup, I could give it to a friend of mine. I could throw it in the trash, go and put it for sale on eBay, uh, go and put it for sale on Craigslist, right? There's, there's sort of lots of different opportunities for things I could do. Um, because I really own that item, right? It, I have full property rights over it. Now, contrast that to a traditional digital item. Think about your Twitter handle, or if you play any online games, think about um, you know an item that you've earned inside of a game. If I told you, you know, go and sell your Twitter handle on eBay, pretty difficult to do, right? You don't really have the same property rights over those digital items that you take for granted in the physical world. So NFTs kind of layer on those property rights to digital assets in a really interesting way that in isolation, again, you know, maybe they look just like regular digital items, usable inside of a game, but with an ecosystem around it, with lots of marketplaces, with virtual worlds where you can go and take these items, then they start to look very different and, and much more interesting in our opinion than just a, you know, a regular digital item. So you've been interested in NFTs for years and you've been working in the space for a few years. Why is it, do you think, that NFTs finally took off in the last few months? I think it was a combination of things and the most important of which was really the, the buildup of a lot of hard work over the last roughly three or four years. Um, depends how far back you want to go. I guess you could go back to the origins of Bitcoin if you really want to trace it, trace it that <laughs> far back. Um, but really the last three years, there's just been um, a lot of uh, activity and a lot of building in the NFT space. So it started with CryptoKitties. It started with projects like CryptoPunks as well. Um, but from there, there was so much developer, early developer interest that 
um, all of the tooling around NFTs got a lot better. So wallets improved, MetaMask really improved their support for NFTs and also for fungible currencies. Um, marketplaces like our own emerged and allowed anyone to kind of create an NFT and immediately start trading it. Art platforms emerged that were specifically dedicated to bringing artists on board to create NFTs and building more of a curated experience. Um, fiat on-ramps onto crypto started getting a little bit better. Uh, so you had that that buildup of infrastructure such that today, when you kind of dive headfirst into NFT space, there's just so much to explore. Actually, just to rattle off a few other things, there's NFT index funds where you can take your NFTs and put them in, um, sort of turn them into an ERC-20 that can be traded. There's collateralized loans on NFTs. There's all this really cool stuff. And then I would say there were a few things that really poured fuel on the fire uh, for for the NFT space and, and kind of accelerated that inflection. And, you know, some of them were these really big sales. I think you covered the $4 million Beeple sale. You know, I think you had a large part in, in really uh, bringing awareness to this space. And a lot of artists, I think, really took note at this idea that you could have a real business as a digital artist. Um, that was something that, you know, didn't really exist as a, as a career opportunity in a real way. So those types of events really led people to take note of this space. Uh, another example is NBA Top Shot, which worked with the NBA to build an NFT trading card game. I think that really accelerated the space forward. So in my opinion, it wasn't one silver bullet. It was a lot of uh, things kind of coming online and really the accumulation of a, a lot of hard work from a lot of different people. Yeah, I know personally for me that people I know in my personal life who definitely don't have a crypto background were texting me about NBA Top Shot. Uh, so yeah. I thought, oh, this is something that's catching the attention of non-crypto people. And so who is uh, creating NFTs? I know it's a very diverse group of people. And um, and who were the buyers? Sure. On the creator side, uh, very diverse. Yeah. So we have everyone from game companies that are building NFTs into games. So great examples of that include Decentraland. So Decentraland is a virtual world project where you can own land inside of the world as an NFT. And then if you own that land, you can build stuff on top of it. Even more exciting is that after you've built something on your land, you can bring in NFTs from the art world and you can, people have created museums inside of Decentraland. So CryptoVoxels is another example of this. So there's this whole gaming ecosystem that flies a little more under the radar, I would say, relative to the stuff that's happening in the like creator, influencer, musician side of things. But I think it's actually really exciting and really important to push the space forward. And then the other folks who are creating NFTs, really anyone can go and create an NFT. I was telling someone the other day that I created an NFT where if you bought the NFT, you could get 45 minutes of advice for me on how to build a crypto startup. And surprisingly, people actually bought it. Uh, so, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of, of what you want, what you might want to sell as an NFT. It's really, uh, we've seen some pretty strange things. Now, uh, there are more and more influential folks creating NFTs. So Rob Gronkowski, pretty famous football player, recently launched a trading card, a set of trading cards on OpenSea. Kings of Leon, so musicians, and, and really everyone's sort of tiptoeing into it and, and trying it out. So that's on the on the creation side. On the um, buyer side, I would say that um, traditionally, it has been folks who are deeper into the crypto ecosystem already. So maybe they own a bit of ETH and are excited about the vision of Web3 and therefore, you know, 
checked out a Web3 game and you know want to participate in it. So sort of at the intersection of crypto enthusiasts, gamers, technologists, um, those types of folks. What's exciting to your point around NBA Top Shot is that that's really expanded dramatically in the last six months. So as you said, now there are folks who haven't even heard of crypto or, or aren't familiar with it who are just fans of the NBA or fans of a particular creator and want to support them in some way. And those types of folks are starting to get involved as well. Obviously, there have been a number of sales that have had eye-popping sales tags attached to them. And I was wondering, do you think that we're currently in a bubble with NFTs? It's a good question. Um, I think it's hard to quantify the NFT bubble, right? Because with cryptocurrency bubbles, you can point to the price of Ether and you can say like, price of Ether is too high or something like that, right? Um, with NFTs, it's not just about like the price, right? So, you know, there was the $69 million sale of the Beeple art, but you know, it wasn't because the purchaser thought of that as an investment necessarily. It was more sort of a cultural moment. And if you listen to interviews with him, it's really interesting to hear him talk about why he made that purchase. He was really solidifying digital art as a category. So I do think that like all new technology, there's sort of this wave of exuberance and excitement, and then the excitement kind of dies down. That being said, I think if you look deep into the NFT space, you realize that there's there's all of this excitement, there's all of this volume and, and all of this, these transactions happening on a very, um, you know, hard to use uh, user experience and for the most part. Some applications have made this easier, but they do cut corners in terms of giving people sort of the full ex- NFT experience. Um, and so I think there's so much that we can do to really make the experience better that I am optimistic that maybe even if, you know, excitement sort of cools down a little bit, that we're really just at day zero for NFTs. I am extremely confident that the design space for NFTs is just going to get wider and wider and more and more exciting. There's always these sort of local maxima, a little bit of a correction, and then things kind of progress from there. Yeah, I will have to agree with you on that. And I'm sure you know more about this than I do. But from what I've been hearing, there's just a lot more coming from a lot of new players. So on that note, how do you see the NFT ecosystem evolving? What do you think will end up being the biggest categories and which are some categories that are kind of quiet or small now, but that you expect to become much bigger? Well, I think the category that has really resonated with people for good reason is this idea, this really simple concept that as a creator, and a lot of people are creative, everyone's creative in in some way, in my opinion, that as a creator, you can create content and have a direct relationship with the person who's supporting you, right? So contrast that to Instagram, right? Where you're uploading your photos to Instagram or your content to Instagram, And Instagram's business model is not going to reward you directly for the things that you upload. You're going to, you know, basically be kind of subject to their platform and their advertising based business model. And, you know, typically you don't earn um, much from that relationship with, with that company. So that's a powerful idea, right? The idea that anyone who's creative can create content and distribute it to people who want to support them. I mean, I think that's going to get more and more powerful as we lower the barriers to entry for blockchain. So for example, today on Ethereum, in order to do a transaction, you're typically paying $50 in gas. Imagine if it was only less than a cent in gas. Well, you could have people buy things for 50 cents. And, you know, at that point, you know, anyone who wants to contribute to their 
favorite artist can really easily do so in a way that, you know, you're not necessarily expecting a ton from it, but you do kind of feel like you have a, a stake and you could resell the NFT later down the road. And so it's a very interesting kind of hybrid model between you're not exactly investing in that person, um, but you are, you know, contributing to them um, in a meaningful way that, and there's some sort of upside as opposed to a pure Patreon type model where you're just pure donation based. So I think that that use case is really powerful because it's so simple. Um, it doesn't require going and creating a new game or creating a, a super sophisticated experience. It, it's something that can resonate with a lot of people. That said, I do think that over time, what I'm excited about is more and more utility being added to the NFTs. So as opposed to just being a pure collectible, having some use case, whether that's a ticket to an event, um, an item inside of a game, access to a closed group. Um, I think the sky's the limit in terms, you know, <laughs> there was my use case where you you get uh, 45 minutes of my time. I think, you know, those types of things are super interesting as well. So I would say the general theme is greater and greater utility. And if I was going to point to a couple categories, uh, I would say gaming is is extremely exciting and event ticketing is is also extremely exciting. And I think we'll definitely see continued innovation in the gaming space, uh, I think, this year. Yeah, I agree with that. I've been uh, keeping an eye on the gaming thing, but I agree with you that because of the fees on Ethereum right now, it's probably not going to take off quite yet. But you're right that there are new solutions in the works uh, where it could be right on the cusp of major growth. So I don't know if any of the examples that you just gave fall into the category of what I'm going to ask about, but you wrote this amazing NFT Bible. And one of the topics that you covered was the programmability of NFTs. And you even gave some examples, but I actually didn't know what some of these terms meant, like you talked about forging, crafting, the two I could figure out were redeeming and random generation. Um, but yeah, can you just talk a little bit more about what you think is possible with the programmability of NFTs and define some of those other examples? One of the interesting things um, to, to mention about NFTs is what is the sort of most generic NFT possible? Well, really all it is, is it's who owns this unique serial code, right? So who owns ID? CryptoKitty ID number one, two, three, four, five, and then the ability for the owner to transfer it to someone else, right? That's really all that's baked into an NFT is who owns it and the permission to transfer it. But on top of that, you can layer all sorts of other things, right? So you could, um, you can program into the smart contract that, you know, you take a CryptoKitty and a God's Unchained card and you put you you like send them to the same address and then suddenly another NFT pops out, right? Something creative like that. Um, so that's actually I think what I was referring to when I was referring to forging, right? A game mechanic where basically you take uh, different uh, sort of raw materials and create uh, something new from them. Very underexplored in the NFT space, uh, largely because of gas costs. I think if we're speaking primarily about gaming, it's very interesting because you could create games that you know, involve assets from all sorts of different places, crypto kitties, uh, trading cards, Decentraland land, and uh, create new assets from them. And the game developer doesn't have to have a relationship with each of those companies because they're just NFTs at the end of the day. They all look the same. That's one example of sort of a creative programmability use case. Randomization, the idea there is, can you create NFTs that are more randomly generated? So 
Um, and there have been a number of projects in this space, but there's a lot of excitement and you know some controversy over loot boxes. But could you create on-chain transactions that randomly generate a set of NFTs? There has been uh, some some work in that area as well. And, and, then what, and what did the, you mean uh, when yeah. you reference loot boxes? Um, yeah, so loot boxes are basically in games. You'll have these boxes that you can open that randomly give you items inside of the game. Let's actually, oh, just one last question I wanted to ask about NFTs. We've been talking about ownership. I do know that there's kind of some questions around what exactly it is that people own when they own an NFT. Mm. What would you say it is that they do own? Um, Well, it differs. So uh, in the base case, so let's take CryptoKitties for example. When you buy a CryptoKitty, um, you own the CryptoKitty. But that doesn't like give you the rights to go and sell shirts with the CryptoKitty on it, right? You don't own the rights to the CryptoKitty unless they change the something copyright. about how they're yeah. the copyright. Yeah, that's that's not what they're selling. Now, someone else could come along and say, you know, make a contract, a legal contract that or you know terms that says when you buy this NFT, you do get the rights, right? Totally legitimate thing to do. The point here being that all all the NFT is opinionated about is just, it says who owns the serial code. And that serial code can represent anything, right? It could represent real rights. It could not. Um, it's really up to whoever issued the NFT. And it's also up to that, to, to people respecting those rights. You know, for example, here's another, here's another interesting example. We've had folks um, tokenize physical assets. They, they took uh, bottles of wine and they turned them into NFTs, right? And so they said, okay, this NFT represents this bottle of wine. You can kind of cash it in and get the physical asset if you want. And then these things can be traded around and used in the DeFi ecosystem. So there's all these really exciting things that you can do once you've turned them into an NFT. You're still relying on that party to respect that you can go and get the physical bottle of wine. Like if they go out of business or run away, then that's not going to work. Or similarly in games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and similarly in games, right? You're sort of respecting that the CryptoKitties game is going to stick around. Now, where it gets interesting is you can create NFTs that sort of don't have reliance on any single party, right? So this is what a lot of folks are starting to do in the art space. They're creating an NFT and then they're representing the metadata for that NFT. So the metadata is the image, the name, description, all the like attributes of that NFT. They're putting that on a decentralized file storage system. And so there, it's sort of just as unstoppable as the NFT ownership itself. It's basically there permanently on this decentralized system. And so it doesn't really rely on a game website to be available or, you know, in the case of the wine for the company selling the wine to exist, it's just out there, right? And that's pretty interesting because those types of NFTs, you can imagine them persisting for centuries uh, or or decades. And so that's kind of an interesting um, uh, thing that's happening as well. Yeah. One thing that I found interesting was the Bloomberg columnist, Matt Levine, called NFTs tradable ostentation. And I've heard other people talk about it as like bragging rights. What do you think of what do you think of those characterizations? I think it's I think that 
is certainly applicable to some types of NFTs. I think the the best example is um, CryptoPunks. So CryptoPunks was started actually before CryptoKitties. It was really the most, well, I guess people would debate me. There was also rare Pepe's and things like that. But one of the most OG um, crypto projects, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, there are basically these 10,000 CryptoPunks um, they, you know, they're pretty simple kind of art pieces. Uh, they each have, you know, different characteristics. There's sort of alien punks and zombie punks and different hats and things like that. And back in 2017, they were given away for free. So you could just go and you could go on the CryptoPunks website and you could submit a blockchain transaction and claim one. For a long time, there were there was a very small group of people who were enthusiastic about CryptoPunks. And every now and again, you know, one would trade for 100, maybe maybe $1,000, uh, not a lot of activity outside of sort of the the core NFT uh, enthusiast. Um, but what's happened is that that owning a CryptoPunk has really become symbolic in some ways of either you spent a lot of money on that CryptoPunk um, or you were very early in the space, right? So a lot of people have them as their Twitter handles. Um, there's sort of this crypto cultural significance to owning a CryptoPunk. To the point where now, if you look at CryptoPunks, um, one was sold not too long ago for $8 million. So they've sort of become, and you know, frequently they're, they're valued at you know, the million dollar range. I think the cheapest one is 10 or 20 grand. Um, and so they've sort of become this candidate for a, a real digital antique that has gone far beyond, I think if you ask the folks who created CryptoPunks, they had no idea that this would be happening three years later. And they've, you know, sort of taken on a a life of their own in the culture of crypto and even, you know, more broadly than crypto in in the general tech scene. Um, So it's been really interesting to see that project evolve. Um, And so I think to your original question, I do think in in these certain circumstances, you know, I don't think that that sort of dynamic is going to apply to all NFTs. Um, Some NFTs are just useful. In some circumstances, they, they really have taken on this very cultural significance that's you know similar to owning a, a physical piece of art. All right. This is so much great information about NFTs, and yet we have not discussed OpenSea. So in a moment, we will do that. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. Join our fifth annual Blockchain Summit and Education Series on May 18th to 21st for a deep dive into zero-knowledge privacy technologies, accounting, and tax rules, as well as the future of finance. Sign up and learn more at ey.com slash global blockchain summit or blockchain.ey.com. Kyber's dynamic market maker, DMM, is a game changer in DeFi being the first protocol designed to react to market conditions to optimize fees while providing extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. Fees are adjusted dynamically based on market conditions to maximize returns and reduce the impact of impermanent loss. Liquidity providers can customize the pricing curve to create amplified pools that greatly improve capital efficiency and reduce trade slippage. Depositing tokens to earn fees is also fast and simple, with this liquidity easily accessible by dApps, aggregators, or other users. Visit dmm.exchange now. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. 
Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Back to my conversation with Devin. All right. So what is OpenSea? So OpenSea is a marketplace for NFTs. Um, So one way to think about it is an eBay for NFTs, where you can go and you can buy and sell pretty much any NFT that... um, that's on Ethereum and we're actually expanding to other blockchains as well. And so we allow for a variety of sale uh, mechanisms. So you can go and you can auction your NFT off to the highest bidder. You can do what's called a Dutch auction where you start at a specific price and it declines, or you can just do a fixed price listing. We have bidding. We have all of these different sale mechanisms for NFTs. And then um, the last thing I would say is that OpenSea has become sort of a source of truth for NFTs. We've been around for quite a long time. We index all of the NFTs that are out there uh, on the blockchain, meaning that we allow you to explore and search and discover all of them. And so that's sort of another role that OpenSea has been playing in the ecosystem. Since NFTs can be bought and sold on multiple platforms, how do you expect to maintain OpenSea's position as the biggest marketplace? What would you say is its moat? Yeah, I would say um, we're very focused on the on improving the customer experience. So we, you know, we're not as you know opinionated about having a lot of lockdown onto our platform. We're super happy if people go and experience other NFT websites, and you know, we think that at the moment it's really um, a rising tide lifting all boats. Um, but I I will say that we we are laser focused on um, making our uh, customers happy. And we do have a long way to go there. I think there's a lot of UX that needs to be improved about blockchain experiences in general and, and OpenSea in particular. But we we do see um, ourselves establishing a, a real brand and trust with our customers uh, such that they can really reliably come onto OpenSea, get the best prices, discover the things that they might want to purchase, um, and, and have a really great experience around NFTs. And, you know, frankly, I think users uh, don't necessarily want to constantly be you know moving around between tons of different confusing user experiences they want something that they can rely on um, so we really aim to have OpenSea be that reliable uh, source of both NFT data and uh, the ability to trade nfts as well and in terms of appealing to creators how do you compete against the marketplaces that are focused on specific verticals for instance if i'm a visual artist why would i use OpenSea over something like super rare great question i think um the way we see it is um there's certainly an exciting role and for for more curated marketplaces like super rare but there's also it's important for people to have the ability to just create an nft and sell it to people you know regardless of whether they've been accepted into a specific platform um, or a specific, more curated set of artists. 
Um, and so I think we're not trying to be, uh, we don't think of ourselves as competitors to something like super rare. We actually think we're quite symbiotic with super rare. Folks can buy uh, NFTs on super rare and sell them on OpenSea if they so desire. But, uh, you know, we do have an open minting platform that allows anyone to come and create an NFT and sell it. Um, and, you know, I think the benefits of ours are we have a nice set of features there. So we recently made some optimizations where you can mint uh, without having to pay the gas up front and sort of offloading it to the first purchase. Um, and then we've added a bunch of really interesting um, additions to that. So the ability to add unlockable content to an NFT adding different properties and traits. So uh, we find that a lot of people find that that those that feature set is uh, is really great for getting something off the ground. Yeah. And the unlockable content is just specific content that only the buyer will know or have access to. Did exactly. I get that right? Yeah. Yep. And so how does OpenSea make its money? We currently take a transaction fee. So um, on successful sales, we take two and a half percent. And for the minting where the cost of minting is offloaded to the first transaction, is it the buyer paying that or the creator? In that scenario, the the buyer pays the gas cost uh, that's separate from the um, fee that OpenSea takes. But yeah, the, the buyer pays the gas cost in that sort of sense. But uh, I will note that even if you minted it, with a regular system where you where you actually did pay the gas cost, the buyer would also pay the gas cost to transfer it. So um, the buyer is kind of paying the gas cost in either circumstance. And so over time, what do you expect to be OpenSea's largest source of growth? Or which of the categories do you expect will be one of the biggest ones for you? Well, I, I think we've always seen OpenSea as a very general platform. So, um, you know, my hope is that we don't just become a marketplace specifically for, say, art or a marketplace specifically just for gaming. I really hope that the use cases and diversity of NFTs continues to expand and that we sort of become this really horizontal marketplace that can support all sorts of different use cases. Um, but I do think that, you know, there, there are certainly some of those use cases that I think will take off earlier rather than others. And the ones I would definitely point to are number one, gaming. So we're, we're seeing a ton of activity there, especially given that um, we're expanding across uh, multiple blockchains now. Um, and then art, I think, is going to be... There, our art and cr sort of creator slash collectibles um, is going to continue to be a really exciting use case as well. And is that because those change hands a little bit more often than some of the other categories? Or I would have thought that maybe a bigger category for you would be one where... Uh, the items do change hands more frequently because then you would get a cut of each of those sales. I think in gaming, what we've witnessed is that depending on the game, um, the lower value assets do change hands relatively frequently. Um, the higher value assets, not as much, obviously. And and that's a good point about art is that, you know, if you look at super rare, for example, most of their sales are primary sales, not secondary sales. Um, but there are these really, you know, occasionally very large secondary sales. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic. But in the gaming space, um, you know, our sense is that you can create, once you have lower transaction costs, you can really create a robust economy where, you know, you can have millions of people participating at 50 cents to buy their first item from the secondary market. Um, but then you can also have the prosumer cohort that's more interested in purchasing things at a, at a higher value. 
Um, and maybe those, the velocity and the frequency with which those things change hands is a little bit lower. I guess I just realized that either way, even if something doesn't change hands frequently, if it's higher value, then if your fee is based on a percentage, you'll still get a hefty fee for those. So then it's like less about the frequency. Do you have stats on how much money people tend to be making with OpenSea? And I'm sure it probably differs across category, but I'm interested to know those numbers. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly how much money people, or I, I don't have um, uh, aggregate statistics that I could, that I'd be able to rely on. Um, that being said, um, in terms of just general stats, um, so last month we did a around $148 million in gross merchandise volume. Um, that was up from about $98 million in February and then just $8 million in January. So there, as you can see, there's been really crazy growth of this space over the last little while. And then, um, you know, I think for if you take sort of a, an example set of digital artists, I was actually just talking to um, a class from the Fashion Institute of Technology here in New York over Zoom and um, someone apparently had gone and just gotten really, really deep in the NFT space last year and made 25 grand uh, from just selling their their digital art and uh, you know use that to pay student loans, which is really awesome to see. So there's stories like that. Um, there's you know now these sort of up and coming digital artists who occasionally are leaving their day jobs and you know deciding to devote their full time to this, which wouldn't necessarily advise to do unless you uh, know that you're going to um, be successful at it. But, uh, you know, it is becoming this really, really interesting opportunity where artists can directly monetize their work and people who want to support those artists can, you know, contribute really easily. So um, whether that's for sort of viewed from an investment angle or, or more of just a support um, uh, angle, I, I think it's it's just a completely different um, dynamic than you know, again, what you would see on existing digital platforms. And I heard you say on a different podcast that you've been getting a lot of inbound, but um, that conversation with the FIT class makes it sound like, are you also trying to do things to draw in non-crypto creators to this space? Yeah, well, most of our um, recent launches with bigger creators, influencers, athletes, musicians have been from people reaching out to us being interested um, I think all of the NFT platforms are just seeing this really giant wave of of excitement and curiosity and in some cases, confusion around what NFTs are. So we're certainly seeing that. Uh, we, we've probably done a lot less outbound um, outreach than some of the more art-targeted platforms um, just because we're more focused on um, building our sort of horizontal platform than going specifically and trying to target um, artists, but um, you know, it's certainly a lot of fun to you know have those sorts of conversations with younger people who are who are like learning about it, and it's always great to get kind of feedback on what are the questions that people have and what are the like sources of confusion. And you recently launched OpenSea Drops, which are these collaborations with some bigger name creators. Do you have any numbers that you can share on how successful those have been? We launched a few r pretty. Uh, exciting um, drops recently. So one was with um, Rob Gronkowski. I believe he did one and a half million in trading card sales, and I think total of three or four million uh, secondary sales as well. We did a launch with an artist named Kevin Abosh, um, who I believe sold five million recently. Uh, and then we've done 
a whole set of um, folks from Sean Mendez on the music side to athletes. Um, so lot, lots of uh, early experiments and, and a lot of excitement around it. Um, recently, we also did the SNL auction. So the SNL team actually auctioned off their video of NFTs as an NFT. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, we've been doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that was a great video. I did mention it on the podcast. Hopefully people watch that. Um, so as you mentioned, OpenSea plans on integrating these some layer two solutions plus other blockchains. Uh, the two layer two solutions I know about are Polygon and Immutable X. And then some of the blockchains are Flow and Tezos. How do you decide which other blockchains or which layer twos to support? In general, for any application developer, there there are these pretty interesting trade-offs, right? So if you look at, I'm not saying that uh, one solution is better than the other. It's just that they come with different uh, pros and cons. Um, on one side, you have layer two blockchains or EVM compatible blockchains that look a lot like Ethereum. And the nice thing about those is that you can use all of the existing Ethereum infrastructure, right? So it's a lot easier for application developers to support, which means that there could be more assets deployed on them. Um, and then for users, they don't necessarily have to learn a new wallet. They can use MetaMask, um, which in my opinion has some really great tooling um, and pretty easily connect to one of these other blockchains. So that's on, on one side, um, those are kind of the benefits of being and, and more then compatible. Are you saying, and so are you saying that that would apply to Tezos and Flow? That's one side. And then Tezos and Flow are sort of on the other side where um, okay. you know, Flow <laughs> is not EVM compatible. So you bring your own, you have, they have their own wallet and they've done an amazing job of sort of abstracting away some of the blockchain components of the application to make it really easy for uh, someone who's not familiar with crypto to, to buy their first item. Um, and then Tezos, similarly, right? You have your own, their own wallet ecosystem around it as well. So there's there's pros and cons, right? With with those with that approach, they can fix a lot of the broken things about Ethereum, right? There's a lot of things I think Ethereum probably would have done differently if they um, could start over. Um, some highly technical things um, that just make the Ethereum blockchain kind of interesting to work with, uh, particularly around programming languages, how the accounts work, those types of things. So that's the nice thing about starting fresh. Uh, but of course, the con is that you're not sort of immediately interoperable with the existing infrastructure. So we we sort of balance those two approaches. Um, we've built our systems in such a way that we can support everything eventually. But of course, there's going to be more of a heavier lift around the things that are less compatible with Ethereum. And we sort of evaluate things based on how much activity and how much demand is there from from users at the end of the day. Oh, okay. So So for Flow and Tezos what tipped it over to you guys adopting that? Was it demand? Just like, you know, there are so many blockchains that are competing with Ethereum. So it, you know, I guess flow makes sense simply because of NBA top shot and because it's pretty focused on the NFT space. Tezos, you know, has a number of other competitors. So, uh, and I should mention Tezos is definitely a previous sponsor of my show and may even be a current sponsor. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, how how did you pick amongst the constellation of blockchains that are vying for that space? To be clear, we haven't launched either of those yet, right? So we're still um, in the development phases. Um, uh, and we're not at all opposed to integrating other blockchains as well. We, we take a very, you know, blockchain agnostic approach. What we liked about Flow is obviously, you know, they've been great partners with us from the beginning. Um, they 
launched um, Cheese Wizards, and they used they relied heavily on um, OpenSea as a secondary marketplace for that game. That that was sort of their second game. We just have a very good relationship with them. Where I'm frankly really excited about some of the decisions that they made on the technical side around how they architected Flow. I think they really put a lot of thought into security, a lot of thought into um, how applications are developed on Flow, those types of things. Tezo, similarly, we've had a great relationship with them for a long time, and we're excited about some of the early art projects that are coming to fruition on on Tezos. Our belief is that we're going to live in a a very multi-chain world uh, over the next coming years, and it's not just going to be a single chain that dominates everything. It'll be a bit messy, I think, for a while um, with a lot of competition on kind of the layer one and layer two space. Um, Probably some consolidation um, eventually. But um, I think application developers, in my opinion, need to be prepared for a world where there are a lot of different blockchains. And there's some probably going to be some user confusion about that as well. And for the layer twos, does using layer twos fragment NFT liquidity? That's a good question. I would say it depends. Um, What we're seeing mostly with layer twos today is that NFTs will launch on layer twos and then be tradable in the layer two environment. And then if folks want to bring them to layer one, they they can, but they don't necessarily have to. Um, So actually, I think layer twos, um, because they're lower gas costs and higher throughput, actually improve liquidity uh, for particularly for decentralized marketplaces while maintaining interoperability with with the main chain. So I actually think they're going to really help marketplaces get to the next level. I actually, I think that's a really interesting point. And you're right that especially for gaming, as we discussed, because, you know, as you mentioned, you're going to be launching with Immutable X. And so we would probably see gaming take off more with a chain that can handle high throughput for NFTs. Um, And so for OpenSea, you know, a lot of creators are excited about uh, being able to create an NFT where the secondary sales will give royalties back. And so when artists collaborate, how easy is it for them to um, have the revenue split directly in the smart contract for all future sales? Yeah, great question. So um, it it is something that's evolving over time. There are a variety of approaches. Um, so there's sort of um, one approach, which is try to be very heavy handed and and bake the royalty into the NFT itself and say like, you know, you can't transfer this NFT unless you pay this uh, sale fee. That approach for the most part, I think people have moved away from. The new approach is, is to say, okay, the NFT can kind of broadcast what should be the secondary sale fee and marketplaces can respect that. And if the marketplace doesn't respect that, well, then maybe you don't really want to use a marketplace that doesn't respect the secondary sale fees, right? Um, so that there's a new standard sort of evolving around that idea. Um, because one thing to keep in mind is um, unless you're extremely heavy handed, it, it is difficult to enforce secondary sale fees at, you know, at an extreme level. So for example, let's say that I wanted to sell you um, my piece of crypto art and I didn't want to give the artist their cut, right? Well, I could just sell you it for a dollar uh, or like a very low amount, give that very t- small cut, and then you, you could send me money on Venmo or something, right? Um, so there's always sort of workarounds for getting around those types of um, 
fees. And so in my opinion, I think, you know, it'll sort of be a collaboration where marketplaces decide, you know, we're, we're going to respect these fees in our, if you use our marketplace, we'll respect them. But, you know, it's not so heavy handed that you're, that you can't, you know, transfer it freely as well. Cause I do think that it's important that people can transfer NFTs to whoever they want um, without, without some sort of weird restrictions on having to, to pay um, a certain amount just for a transfer. Um, so it's a, I think it's an evolving thing that uh, will require some some sort of coordination between the different parties involved. That's interesting. Yeah, because I, you know, I think the reason that creators are excited about this space is because of the yeah. royalty yeah. aspect. Um, so, you know, kind of speaking of ways in which this space can be maybe not so positive for creators, there are a number of NFTs, obviously, that are being minted by the people who don't have the right to mint those NFTs. And I was curious on the OpenSea platform, what percentage of the NFTs minted there fall in that category? Unfortunately, I'm not sure what percentage um, it is, uh, but I can tell you how we and other folks deal with those sorts of circumstances. Uh, and, it, and it is an increasing percentage, I would say, or not an increasing percentage, but an increasing number, right? So as the number of NFTs grows and more and more people start minting, um, there's, of course, there's a number of things that happen. One, there's more opportunity for fraud. So for example, someone could, since you can create an NFT, you know, they could create an NFT that looks identical to a CryptoKitty and try to sell it to someone. So that's something that happens um, every now and then um, on our platform. And then, of course, there's this issue of taking content from existing sources that they don't own and, and uploading those as NFTs. In both of those scenarios, the way that we think about it is, yes, you have created an NFT. And in some ways, it is a legitimate NFT. Um, but OpenSea does not care to display that on our site. Uh, so we're not going to display a fraudulent CryptoKitty because it would confuse our buyers, right? And uh, similarly, we're not going to display copyrighted content because that's you know against the law. What What's very interesting is that you could, in theory, create sort of a Silk Road type experience around NFTs where you, you can sell these like knockoff NFTs. Now, I don't know how much demand there would be for something like that, but the interesting thing about it is that OpenSea is not the only platform out there. So we're not the gatekeepers. Um, we're not like Twitter where we can kind of completely shut down people's accounts. Um, but we do have policies in place um, around what types of things we allow people to uh, uh, surface on our platform. And so how is it typically that creators usually figure out that their work has been minted into an NFT without their consent? So we have a flagging system on an, on OpenSea where um, if you notice something that uh, you know is is suspect, or if you're the artist who created it, you can flag it, and then our we have folks who um, look through those reports and delist that um, content. And then, so if there has been somebody who already purchased that, then what happens at that point? Yeah, in those sorts of circumstances, so we do the there we have a relatively sophisticated system around this. Um, anything that ha has been created on OpenSea that has not been explicitly verified by OpenSea has a warning attached to it, right? So if, it, for example, CryptoKitties, we know the CryptoKitties contract. We know if something is a CryptoKitties. We even have a, a little blue check mark next to it that says, this is indeed a CryptoKitty. Uh, and so we don't show that warning. Um, but for anything that, you know, is just uploaded by someone and linked to, then uh, we, we do show that warning and the onus is on the in, on the buyer in that circumstance. 
Um, so it's sort of do your own research when it comes to unverified um, items, frankly, because we don't have the bandwidth to look through all of the content that comes to OpenSea. Um, but we also ensure that unverified content is not going to show up in places where users might make the mistake and think it's something that has been verified. So our feed is a lot more tailored to the top content on OpenSea as opposed to just anything that has been listed. So if I buy an NFT and then later on it's flagged as something that you know was um, a, a copyrighted material that the creator did not have the right to mint, then I don't get refunded my money or anything like that. It's it's just you know I didn't do my research. Unless the creator decides to refund you your money, um, then then that's correct. Yeah. And then what happens to that token? It's just that it cannot be listed on OpenSea. That's right. Yeah, the token. Um, so if it's copyrighted content, the token will sort of appear as a like square, black square on your profile uh, that says, you know, unfortunately, this item was delisted. Um, but, you know, you if there is another marketplace out there that doesn't, you know, have an objection to that content or, or you know, does want to um, support that NFT, you it's still in your wallet, technically. And is there any kind of Goldilocks version of OpenSea um, doing some vetting in a form that's decentralized? Because I feel like the current <laughs> system, it's probably more negative for creators the way it's currently done. Because it means that whoever wants to steal their work and mint it is, you know, can basically just do that. And then, um, you know, they don't really suffer major consequences. So... Is there any kind of decentralized version of this where an OpenSea has some kind of token and then there's a decentralized <laughs> network of people who do some vetting about what gets minted on the platform rather than catching people after the fact? Yeah, well, um, not aware of any decentralized uh, version. I mean, there have been, um, I guess there's two angles. Um, one is sort of the token curated registry idea, which has been around for a long time, which is basically like a group of people that would vet content before it gets minted. Um, so that's certainly an interesting idea. I don't know how, yeah, it, it's possible that something like that could scale. In fact, maybe it's an interesting startup idea. Um, now, what I will say is that that doesn't, that doesn't prevent people from just, you know, deploying a smart contract and minting to that smart contract and having it show up on OpenSea in some capacity. Um, and I will say, I'll also say that, uh, you know, it's not just after the after it's been bought that we have this flagging system, right? If you identify something before it's even on sale, um, you know, we can take it down. And then, and additionally, we'll be putting better measures in place to auto detect this stuff through basic machine learning and sort of image comparison, those types of things. Um, so I don't think I think oh. there's a lot of sort of low hanging fruit improvements we can make um, before um, necessitating sort of something more extreme, but I'm in full support of, um, you know, a, a more creative solution where it's like incentivization and stuff. Um, I think sometimes those types of things are compelling. Uh, other times they're hard to actually pull off in practice. Recently, there was a story that Matthew Hickey of Hacker House introduced what he called the zero day collection, which included an asset that he described as, quote, highly collectible hacker artwork. And it was basically a cybersecurity exploit that he minted as an NFT and the day after OpenSea took it down, what factors went into making that decision? 
I, I don't know the exact, um, I, I wasn't as involved in the exact decision around that one, but, you know, our, our sense was that it was, um, you know, in violation of kind of terms of service in, in the sense that like, you know, it was sort of selling something that we didn't feel like comfortable supporting. Right. Yeah. I don't know the exact um, reasons, but it was a little about outside of the territory of things that we felt comfortable with. And earlier we were talking about fractionalized NFTs and there has been some suggestion that those could be considered securities. Do you have an opinion on that or any insight? Well, we, yeah, we don't trade fractionalized NFTs on our platform. Um, I um, am not an expert on, on that. I'm not convinced that in circumstances where it's a fractional version of a pure collectible that it would necessarily be a security, but, um, you know, we tend to, um, stay out of the, like, you know, currency fungible world and more oriented towards these sort of unique one of a kind assets. So let's now, um, talk again, uh, kind of about where NFTs are going. As we've discussed, there's, it, it's very, like, it's a space where creators really can play, and yet, in order to kind of build this world where NFTs are a huge thing, there are a lot of standards that still need to be set. So what do you see as some of the um, issues that need to still be decided upon when it comes to NFTs? I think one uh, area of opportunity, in my opinion, is around the metadata for NFTs. So today, um, you know, it's it's pretty basic, right? You can... Um, have an image, a name, a description of your NFT, but you can't necessarily broadcast to the world that this NFT is, for example, an event ticket, right? If you could broadcast that to the world, it wouldn't be that hard to do. It's just creating some sort of standard around it. Then, you know, OpenSea could kind of pick it up in a different way and, you know, support it more natively on our platform such that, you know, maybe the sorting and the filtering and searching is different. Um, or if you broadcast it to the world that, this is a game item, you know, maybe uh, games could sort of pick that up and incorporate them in their game more interestingly, right? So um, there's, a, there's sort of this open question around, you know, you have a crypto kitty, and let's say you wanted to create a game where you're like, you know, battling those crypto kitties inside of Decentraland. How, how can you broadcast what that crypto kitty should look like in a different context, right? Is it through like a, you know, more advanced uh, sort of set of 3D models or, you know, I think there's just a lot of opportunity for richer metadata to have that kind of metaverse type ecosystem where things can really move between different types of experiences. So I think that's an opportunity. And yeah, the other one um, we touched on was, was the royalty standard. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about that. But for the royalty one, it didn't seem like you thought there should be a standard way to handle that or, or do you? What's your opinion on that? Oh, I think there should be a standard. I just um, think that it should be more of a standard that broadcasts what the royalty should be. And then marketplaces can opt into that, to, to the fee, as opposed to trying to bake it into the the NFT smart contract itself, um, if that makes sense. So I, I think that primarily for technical reasons, um, because if you bake it into the NFT themselves, then you restrict the transferability of the NFT. Wait, why is that? Well, let's say that you um, said that, like, whenever this NFT is transferred, 
um, you have to pay, or let's let's say that you somehow sort of enforce there's a 5% fee every time it gets sold, right? What happens if I just want to gift you an NFT? There's not going to be a fee on that. And I could gift you an NFT and you could pay me $500 through Venmo, right? Um, so you, it's hard to get around those sorts of scenarios. Hmm. Okay. It's so funny because in other conversations that I've had, um, yeah, I think the creators, but even someone like Mark Cuban is, you know, very excited about that. And then it just seems like you're just saying people aren't going to pay it. They're just going to figure out other ways to handle it. Oh, no, this. no, no. I, I told, sorry. Yeah. I think I'm giving off the wrong uh, impression. I, I think that, and it's really a technical issue. I actually, <laughs> at a high level, I think there should be a standard for royalties. And I think they, in the majority of scenarios, they will, marketplaces will respect those standards and uh, pay royalties to the creators. Uh, so I think I was diving a little bit too too much into the weeds on on the technical side. That's that's sort of my high level view. I just think that the one thing I would say is that there are a few devil devil in the details around how you actually enforce that. But I think that for the most part, it will be enforced through social consensus of, of marketplaces. And I think it's a great opportunity for creators. I think creators will uh, be able to sell their work and monetize the secondary sales. I think that is um, one of the big unlocks and uh, it's all, it's happening today on OpenSea, for example, and it's happening on other, on other platforms um, and it'll continue to happen. Um, there, there are some coordination challenges around having every marketplace sort of use the same fee system, um, but I think it's solvable. Now that NFTs are more in the public eye, there's been pushback on environmental issues. Does OpenSea plan to address that in any way to appeal to the mainstream world? The biggest thing we're doing today is we're moving over from proof of work blockchains to proof of stake blockchains. And we're actually first movers in this category. I think we'll be one of the first um, applications to really have a significant um, multi-chain push uh, away from uh, Ethereum and not not entirely away from Ethereum, but onto these more scalable versions of Ethereum that aren't proof of work based. Um, and and you know I would say that it's interesting. That's um, number one. It's a challenge for the whole blockchain space. It's not just NFTs. Number two, it's already happening not just for environmental reasons, but for pure scalability reasons. So I think it's this inevitable shift um, that is you know already starting to happen and going to kind of increase uh in velocity over the, the coming years yeah i think it's it's just more noticeable with the nfts because it's drawn in this non-crypto crowd yeah so um you're right that it, it's an issue across the space but the nfts for whatever reason have been the catalyst <laughs> for a lot of criticism in that regard yeah. So I recognize you may not be able to reveal who is working on creating NFTs with OpenSea, but what would you say is next for OpenSea? And maybe you can give some hints about what's coming down the pike. Sure. Um, well, well, one thing we're really excited about uh, is launching our first foray into a multi-chain ecosystem, as I mentioned. Um, so we have some alpha experiences there and we're going to be launching things uh, relatively soon. Uh, as a full experience on the on the core uh, platform, um, so we're super excited about that. Um, we do have a few launches in the pipeline of different content, but we we do like to keep that a surprise for our users. Um, working with more and more uh, athletes, musicians, 
um, these types of folks on, on launching exciting NFTs. You know, I think we'll always just be focused on really improving the core platform. So trying to listen to what our users are saying, uh, make it a, a much more friendly experience um, for people who are new to the space. I think OpenSea is a little bit intimidating for the um, casual user at the moment. So we're making a lot of steps into better onboarding and, and um, making NFTs friendlier to people who don't understand the technology yet. So, you know, those are some of the things that we have in the pipeline. Great. And where can people learn more about you and OpenSea? Uh, you can follow OpenSea on Twitter. The handle's OpenSea at OpenSea. And then my Twitter is uh, Defender, D-F-I-N-Z-E-R. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Devin and OpenSea, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.